<laughs> if you have your Bibles, open up Amos, and we are almost done. If you remember, the book of Amos divides into three parts. We began <clears throat> first three chapters with the Oracle of the Nations. That's uh, God's judgment over the nations. And if you remember, the judgment of the nations creates a... Uh, there's a circling effect in the nations that zeroes in to Israel. Israel becomes the center of attention. It has the longest judgment that God speaks out against Israel. Then the next three chapters are sermons directed by Amos to the nation of Israel. And then the last three chapters are the visions that, uh, that Amos had. So we're in the section that deals with his visions. In chapter 8, chapter 9, you may remember, uh, last time we were together, it was the vision of the plumb line, right? And so, when we look at where we are with the Lord, he's the rule, not us, not our neighbor, not a church, not something else. When we're looking at, okay, how am I doing in my in my uh, walk with Christ, then the measure is Christ, not something else. So don't, don't make me the measure. You may be able to surpass me. The rule is Christ. That's the, that's where we put our eyes. That makes sense. So we want to, we want to imitate him. Now, Paul would say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. But the, the point remains the same. It is the measured line is Christ. And so when Christ holds up the plumb line, over the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel is out of square. So God says, there will be judgment that comes. The second vision we look at tonight in Amos chapter 8 is about the bowl of fruit. So the first vision was their judgment is certain. And the second vision is judgment is soon. So when we look at it, Amos Chapter 8, verse 1, this is what the Lord showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. Now, in, on its own, that sounds like kind of nice, right? Basket of summer fruit. Think of summer, you know, a big basket full of watermelon or something. That seems good. But the word for summer carries a little more understanding than just the, the, the time frame that we're in. It's, the, it's a, literally a basket of the very end of the harvest. So it's like the last bit of ripe fruit you're going to see. So it is the, it's the fruit that's going to go bad the soonest. You know, the early harvest you have time on. The late harvest that you only have so many days, right? You, you count down the days, how long that's going to keep. And so this is the basket of summer fruit, which indicates, yes, the first vision Judgment is coming. God has decreed. You're out of square. He's got to tear down the walls to make them straight. In the second vision, he's saying, and it's not going to be long. So we have, we have scripture, prophetic scripture that we look at all the time that often, <clears throat> at least for Israel, they would think, well, that's far in our future. But this isn't far in the future. All right? This is, this is right around the bend. Just within a few years, they're going to see this judgment take place. In Jeremiah chapter 8, 
you have a, a similar idea. It's not the same phrasing, but a similar idea. Look, at, it says in Jeremiah 8, verse 12 and 13. <clears throat> he asks a question. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not ashamed. They did not even know how to blush. Now, if I think about our world, I would say that's how our world is today, right? There's things we should be ashamed of, uh, attitudes and things that we're promoting that we should be ashamed of, but there's no shame. So it's all out in front. And then he says, therefore, they shall fall among the fallen. When I punish them, they will be overthrown, says the Lord. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there were no grapes on the vine nor figs in the tree. Now, if you're here Sunday, we talked about the cursing of the fig tree and Jesus coming to the fig tree expecting fruit. In Jeremiah, you have God looking at the nation. In this case, in Jeremiah, it's the southern kingdom. It's Judah. So this is 150 years after Amos. So he's looking at the southern kingdom and he's expecting there to be fruit, but there's no fruit. He said, I came to gather grapes, but there's no grapes. I came for figs, but there's no figs. There's no fruitfulness in the people. And if we understand Jesus' teaching in the gospel of John, our ability to bear fruit just depends on our abiding in him through faith. Right? It's not about a list of things I have to do. I got I to gotta hit these check marks. It's simply about abiding in the Lord by faith. And then fruit comes as a result of that, right? If you, if you have a fruit tree, I have an apricot tree, and my apricot tree feeds all the squirrels in Buell. So I've, I have lived there. I don't know where my wife went. She had to tell me how many years. I've lived there, we'll say, several years, and I have never eaten one apricot from the tree. And I'll see it full of, of blossoms, and then I'll see it full of fruit, and then I'll see no fruit ever comes. But I see a lot of squirrels running around in the branches of the tree. And so I know that those branches, they're not worried, right? They're not going, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do to bear fruit next year? No, what do they do? They stay, stay connected to the vine, right? Stay connected to the root, Stay connected by, and how are we connected? We're connected by faith. All right, so Jeremiah is saying, look, I came. God is saying, I'm, I'm looking over. You're my people. You make the declaration, right, that you're my people. But I came looking for fruit, and there wasn't any. So look how Jeremiah finishes it. There were no grapes on the vine, no figs on the tree. Even the leaves are withered. And what I gave them has passed away. So it's all, all the blessings are shriveled up. He doesn't see much life. And in verse 20 of Jeremiah 8, he says this. This was probably the saddest verse in the book of Jeremiah. The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. So you've for Judah in Jeremiah, they've come to the point where the opportunities were given. Jesus told a parable this last Sunday. We talked about it, right? And in the parable, he said, the owner of the vineyard, he sent servants to collect what was his. And that's a picture of the prophets over and over and over again, just like Amos, who came to the nations and said, hey, you guys are out of square. You still got time. You could fix this. 
You can fix this. All you need to do is, is be connected to the Lord. And we do that through faith and trusting in him. You got to turn your back on all these other gods, all these other idols, and you need to walk with him. And so they would beat the prophets and kill the prophets and ignore the prophets, but they would not repent. And then at the end of that period of time, there comes a day where reckoning has come, right? So we are in a, a pre-reckoning phase in the United States. We're in pre-reckoning because we still <laughs> have the opportunity to, to repent. I believe we still have an opportunity to repent. We're not too far gone that it's too late. But I guarantee it's at the door. Judgment is at the door. And so we, <clears throat> the call is not, here's the list of things you got to do. Get a haircut and shave your face and get a tie. And that's not it. What he's saying is abide in Christ through faith and fruit will come. And that's what we need to be about. And this was the, this is the word Jeremiah is bringing to Judah, the southern neighbor to Israel. So they are going to go through this. They didn't learn anything from watching it happen to Israel. See, sometimes when we see other people going to judgment, we think, you know, about time God got that guy. And we don't think about ourselves. We don't think, oh, how close am I to that? Right? We don't, we're not considering our own. So he asked Amos in verse 2. He said to Amos, what do you see? And he said, I see a basket of summer fruit. So the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. So here's the word. There's not another harvest coming. There's not another harvest. That's it. So the judgment's here. You guys get what I'm saying? The judgment's here. It comes. The Lord's saying there's not, it's like saying there's not, there's no tomorrow. You know, when uh, Jesus told the story, you may remember about a man who had a, a barn and he brought in the harvest and there was too much harvest for his barn. So he tore down his barns and he grew bigger barns, right? He built bigger barns and he filled all of those. And he said, now finally I filled all my barns. Tomorrow I'll eat and drink and take my fill. And you remember what the Lord said? I like the, I like the King James Version. Thou fool. Tonight, tonight your soul is required of you. Today you meet God. And so it was too late to think about you know, well, now, now I can give my attention to those kind of things. No, the Lord said, the judgment has come. I will never pass by them again. And here's what he's telling them is going to happen. The songs of the temple will become wailings in that day, declares the Lord. So many dead bodies, they are everywhere. And then silence. So the picture is, you right now, the hustle and bustle, if you want to picture it, picturing it like this season for us, for them, you know how busy Christmas is and people are everywhere and guys are singing songs. Well, the harvest time is like that in, in Israel. They've harvested. They're having all these parties. Look, oh God's, look all the, the blessings that we have. Look at our, how blessed we are as a nation. They're looking around at their wealth and all the stuff they have. And the Lord says, the songs you're singing are all going to turn into mourning. And then there's going to be dead bodies everywhere and, and then silence, like no sound. Because Israel's, the northern kingdom is going to be empty. So the Lord is telling 
Amos, look, the destruction of the northern kingdom has come. There's no chance for deliverance now. There's no chance for deliverance. There's not a rescue in sight. And the devastation is going to remove it all. And God frequently in these times mentions worship. He says your worship is going to be turned to mourning, right? Your, the worship is going to be, uh, the songs of the temple will become wailings in that day. You're going you're gonna to shift from whatever they were singing to lamentations. Uh, a lamentation is a funeral song. So you'll, overnight you'll be singing funeral songs. And you have this, this sense that for the northern kingdom who never really developed a right form of worship with God, never really focused on, on how they should have been doing that, that there is a level of condemnation against it. Isaiah, who's a contemporary of Amos, who also prophesied to the northern kingdom, in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10, he had this to say, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. So he's likening the northern kingdom to Sodom and Gomorrah, which metaphorically tells us they're not okay, right? Okay, it's not, it's not necessarily a statement of, of sexuality in any way, but we know when you hear Sodom and Gomorrah, those were people that weren't okay with God. All right, so... So these guys, you're not okay with God. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of your burnt offerings, the rams, the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling in my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Bring no more useless offerings. Why? Because the ability for these people to be connected to God depended on faith in God, not their offering. The expression of the offering was the reality of their faith. Do you guys get what I'm saying? So sometimes, a lot of times, we're thinking of do, do, do. What, do, what can I do? What do I do? What do I do? Can I wear a special hat or do get, a, get the right kind of tattoo? Or what can I do that's going to make it so, so I'm in? And the reality is, from the Old Testament all, all the way through to Revelation, there's one way, and you're saved by grace through faith. So you're connected to God by faith. Now, in the Old Testament, that would be revealed by your faithfulness in bringing your offerings before God. But you would do that because you were connected to God, you were trusting in him, then you would follow what he said. It's not the other way around. First, I do what he said, and then I'll get the faith. You get what I mean? So the Lord said, who, who told you guys to come? What are you doing here? Because they're going through the motions, but there's a reality, there's no relationship. And, and God's frustrated by that. It doesn't matter how many worship songs you know the words to. If you don't have faith in Jesus Christ, you can sing better than anybody. It won't matter. None of that matters. That's not worship. <laughs> worship requires faith, right? You have to know the Lord your God. 
He says in verse 13 of Isaiah 1, bring no more vain offerings. Your incense is an abomination to me. That word incense is how God would speak of their prayers, right? The, the incense in the temple was symbolic of the prayers of the people. So the Lord's saying, your prayers, they're, they're rote. You're just saying the prayers, you know, like we do for meals sometimes, right? Now, it's important that we teach our, our children and, and young people to honor the Lord in our, in our meals, but it ought to be something that is birthed from our heart, right? Not from rote, not just the rhyme. The rhyme was cool when you were little, but we're, we're old now. We shouldn't need the rhyme anymore. So... <clears throat> You know, he's like, your, your prayers, they're an abomination to me. The new moons and Sabbaths and the calling of convocation, that's a, a holy convocation was a fast, the closing of a fast. So he's saying, look, you have all these celebrations, the new moons, the feast days, Passover, Peshach, uh, Sukkot, you're, you're gathering for all these things. This is great, but um, there's no faith. There's no fruit there's no reality. You're just, well, Jesus says it best in Matthew 23, you are whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. You look good on the outside, but the reality of truth and in the inward parts, it's not there. The psalmist, when he's crying out to God and he's writing out his psalms, he said, you desire truth in my inward parts. You want what's, what I say outside, I love you, Lord, to actually be what's on the inside. And so this is his condemnation. So what does he tell them? He tells them in verse 16 of Isaiah 1, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before your eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins were as scarlet, they can be white as snow. So this is Isaiah telling the northern kingdom, there's still time. By the time Amos comes on the scene, Amos is saying, there's no time. Judgment day is here. Now, if, let's just say, I don't know of these, any of examples of this happening, but let's say you were in the Northern kingdom and you heard Amos and Amos said, judgment is coming. There is one direction, you know, you could go to get away from judgment. Do you know which way you got to go South? What's South Jerusalem? Jerusalem's judgment is 150 years away. So, you could have time, but you would have to leave all your wealth, all the beauty of, you just brought in this incredible harvest. You're cashing in. And so I don't know that anybody did that, but a person could have. In Zechariah chapter seven, verse four, it says, and the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, say to all the people of the land, and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh month for these last 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? 
A lot of times when we come to the idea of fasting and our relationship with God, most people view fasting as a way to get God to do something for me. So we'll fast for, you know, someone is having a surgery or they're very sick. And so we're going to fast so that the Lord will see our dedication to go without food. And as we're going without food, it will turn the heart of God and he'll heal. That's what most people think of when they think of fasting. But that's not what fasting is. Fasting is taking the food out of your life as a reminder so that every time you're hungry, you go to God. And if you've ever fasted, you know, after a while, you start being hungry a lot. So you're going to God a lot. That's why the Lord says, was it for me you fasted? Are you fasting for me? So that you'll come to me, so you'll draw near to me. But that wasn't the attitude for most. And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were these not the words uh, the Lord proclaimed through the former prophets? When Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous and the cities all around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited before all the exile happened, isn't this the same complaint that the Lord had then? So this is a common state in the hearts of men in terms of our relationship to God. And when you read the book of Revelation and you see the judgments against Babylon, right? And the woman who rides the beast, Revelation chapter 17, Revelation chapter 18, he's going to use the same kind of phrasing there that he uses here in Amos, meaning when that judgment comes, it's going to take all the songs of joy away and replace it with the songs of the lamentation, of the funeral procession. So you have these symbols that carry that same thought all the way through the scripture. And so Amos declares, hear this, you who trample on the needy, and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain? So he's saying, you're complaining. You're coming together for worship on the Sabbath day, and you're complaining, when is this over so I can go make some money? You see what he's saying? When will the new moon be over so we may sell grain? And the Sabbath so we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great. So it's like, oh, we don't really care so much about the priestly garments and that spiritual stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's get that done. Wrap that stuff up real quick so we can get back to making money. <clears throat> this is the attitude that they had. And then he makes this declaration <clears throat> um, that we would make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances. In the Proverbs, it says the Lord hates false balances. That means like you have one set of balances when you're buying and another set when you're selling, you know, holding your finger on one side so that you get more on the other side. It's a deceitful practice and God's like, I, I don't like that. That we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. So interesting how all these things we're reading about in Amos that were northern kingdom was guilty of is still part of the world today. It's still, you have all these people, you know, Apple cracks me up. 
you pay what, 1400 bucks for a phone? But they paid somebody, you know, 10 cents to put the pieces together for the phone? And they took advantage of the poor to do it, and they do it in another country so they can get away with it, so that the profit margin can be higher? It's no different. You're buying the poor for silver. You're paying them with sandals. Nike's the same. It doesn't matter what you buy. Look, I don't care what you're wearing, what you bought, your glasses, your sunglasses, your T-shirt. It doesn't matter. All of it is a, the system is corrupt. And that corrupt system oppresses the poor and keeps them poor. This is not new. Right? You watched, you've all watched movies where, you know, they, they, they hire somebody to mine and then when they show up to mine, they go, okay, but you got to buy the shovel. And the shovel's going to cost you a month's wages of rent. So basically, you pay rent for the shovel, and you don't get paid for the whole time you work, right? Or the pick, or whatever. And so this is not new. This is, they were doing it then. This is a condition of sinful man to oppress the poor. And so the Lord is saying, look, the only way that we get out of that is when you are connected to the vine and the spirit of God is moving and working in your life. And then you will be driven by him to want to end the oppression, not make it worse. And this is the, this is the whole point of the judgment. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob... I will not forget any of your deeds. Psalm, what is it? Psalm 103. I think it's Psalm 103 that says, as far as the east is from the west, this is how far I have removed your transgressions. What's he say here? By the pride of Jacob. Well, who's the pride of Jacob? Once upon a time, it was the Lord. By the pride of Jacob, I won't forget which means you're not what? Forgiven. And if you're not forgiven, you and I are hung. Right? What hope do you have? You can't be good enough, can you? So <clears throat> the Lord is saying, look, I I'm not going to forget. Your guilt, your blood guilt is on you still. And judgment is right around the corner. Now, the New Testament is not any different. In the book of James, you have similar things. James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Does it look like this? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, and you say, be warmed and filled, what good was it? The words, be warmed and filled, don't do either. Right? So this is the point that James is making. What the, the distinction between faith and works. If by faith you are abiding in Christ, then these attitudes we see will change in our life. So faith by itself without works is dead. But that works, do I have, is it the works that comes first or the faith? So we tend to get it backwards because we want to be in a works-oriented uh, works ideal. Like, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. But that's not what God does. He says, I'll tell you what to do. Abide in me. 
You abide in me, I'll abide in you, and fruit will happen. And you can't fake that, right? You can't fake it because it's supernatural. You can't fake it because it's spiritual. So he goes on in Amos uh, verse 8. He says, shall not the land tremble on this account and everyone mourn who dwells in it and all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt. And on that day declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon, darken the earth as in broad daylight. I will turn your feast to mourning, all your songs to lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. <clears throat> I will make it like the morning for an only son at the end of a bitter day. Sounds like a bad day, right? It's going to be a bad day. And there's a list of perils he talks about, but you need to understand these perils are metaphors. It does not demand, every time the Lord says, I'm going to make the earth shake so bad that every mountain falls, does not mean that there's going to be a global earthquake. But it does mean that judgment is going to affect the whole earth. So that everything that can be shaken will be shaken. He says there's going to be earthquakes and floods. How many times when we talk about end times do we get into this thing where we're saying, well, there's earthquakes are increasing all the more. They keep increasing. They're getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And it's irrelevant because God doesn't need an earthquake. He can use an earthquake if he wants, or he can say, I'm bringing judgment and it'll be like an earthquake and everything's coming down and still do it without an earthquake because we understand what he means, don't we? He says it's going to be like the Nile. Is the Nile in Israel? No. So he's using the Nile as a metaphor, right? That there's going to be like the Nile when it floods and it washes everything out, that's what judgment's going to be like. It's going to be like the flood. It's going to wash everything out. It's going to make a mess out of everything. He's, do you think they really walked around singing lamentations? No, but the sounds of their mourning sounded like lamentations, right? Because they're weeping and they're crying over their loss. Do you think that any of them put on sackcloth? Sackcloth is a sign of repentance. You take off your robes, you take off your fancy clothes, you put on sackcloth and you kneel like Job did before God with ash on his head, right? And you're, you're in a state of humble um, submission before a holy God. They didn't put on any sackcloth. If anything, they're shaking a fist at God while this judgment comes. But do we understand the metaphor? All your clothes are going to be gone. You're not going to have any more Gucci or whatever. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> You're not going to have whatever the fancy duds are. They're, those are gone. You're going to have no more Harleys. Yeah, you're going to be riding Vespas, whatever. <laughs> you're you're going to, we all have mopeds. We're going to, we're seeing all that's going away, right? All that's going away. In fact, when he says, sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. 
He's not saying all of a sudden everybody's going to get male pattern baldness and their hair's all going to fall out. What's he saying? We understand the metaphor, don't we? It's like we say things like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm so anxious or, or I'm so worried and my hair's falling out. You get the metaphor? You understand the emotion of it? Oh, this, the world, it's so, it's so crazy. The entire world is changing overnight. Anybody ever felt like that recently? Like the whole world is changing overnight? Yeah. Well, you know how the Lord would talk about that? I will make the sun go down at noon and the moon... Uh, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth as in broad daylight. In Joel, he says, I will make the sun turn to, to uh, sackcloth and the moon to blood. Uh, the sun's going to go out and the moon's not going to give forth its light. The Old Testament scriptures are ripe with it. It's everywhere. We see it everywhere. And the language of cosmic collapse, all the stars falling out of the heavens, the sun going out, the moon not giving its light. It's always used by the Old Testament prophets to symbolize an act of God's judgment with an emphasis on a total reversal of the political power. Is there going to be any political power in Israel the day after? None. What about in Babylon? What happened in Babylon? Isaiah is going to talk about, I think it's Isaiah, talks about Babylon. He's going to say the same thing about Babylon. Well, what happened? The political power in Babylon. It went away. Whose power did it rise on? The Medes and the Persians, right? Overnight. Bang. This total reversal. He uses cosmic language. You see the same thing in Revelation too, right? And I know we like to go out and count all the blood moons, and I know we're we're looking for that day when the sun gives up its light and all the stars stop shining. But the idea is when that judgment comes on that day, when the Lord rolls up the scroll of the heavens and Jesus Christ sits on the throne on earth, that day there's going to be a cosmic change in all the politics of the earth. There will be an angel that comes to the earth and drives his banner deep into the crust of the earth and he will make a declaration. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. Total reversal, right? We can understand 2,000 years later the book of Revelation because he uses symbolic language and we understand what it means. We may create some problems for ourselves if we start trying to count up all the fourths and the thirds and the halves. But God lays all that out there for us for a reason, right? So that we can comprehend the judgment. And where do we get our understanding of all of that? How do we understand the book of Revelation? You got to go to the 65 books that came before it, right? Because that's the symbols he's using. Those are the symbols that are being used in the book of Revelation. And so we, want, we don't want to be... Look, I'm a literalist. I believe the, the Bible literally means what it says and says what it means. But I will argue with you over whether what it is saying is literal or figurative. The end result will be the same. Jesus Christ is on the throne. He rules forever and ever. The kingdoms of men will be destroyed. Just like Daniel said in Daniel chapter 2. 
That's a long time ago. They will, it will occur. These things will happen. So look what the Lord, the declaration the Lord makes in verse 11. He says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. I will send a famine. This is one of the final judgment God brings before he destroys a nation. He calls back his ambassadors. Look what it says. I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, not a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. I'm not sending any more prophets. I'm not sending any more people. I've sent all I'm going to send. I've said all I'm going to say. Now there will be silence. And look at the next phrase. I don't want you to miss this. They shall wander from sea to sea and north to east. Doesn't that seem weird? Like, do you talk like that? I'm going to go north to east. No, what do we say? North to what? Why doesn't he say south? But what's in the south? The temple's in the south. Jerusalem's in the south. Right worship is south. Are the people looking for God at all? Have they ever responded to any of his prophets? No, the only response they've given to his prophets is to kill them. And so you have this attitude. Now the Lord says, you've wandered all over for me except where I am. Do you know where God is? Is it hard for us to know where to go so, so that we can find the Lord? In the United States of America, literally every hotel, everywhere across the nation, in every room, there's a drawer with a Bible in it. There are no, we're not Bible poor in this country. Can you get to the word of the Lord if you want to? Yeah. But most people don't want to, Right? And this is what the Lord is saying. I'm going to send a famine on the land, but you're not going to care. Because none of you want to hear the word of the Lord. You put Isaiah in a log and sought him in two. You told Amos, why don't you go south where all those holy people are and leave us alone? You didn't want the word, so God says, I'm not going to send it anymore. It's just like every other nation does before it goes to war. Before a nation goes to war, what do they do? They pull all their ambassadors out. They'll tell all the people that are from their country in that land, hey, you might want to come home. Right? So the Lord is making this declaration to the northern kingdom. Okay, you're running from sea to sea and north to east to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but you're not going to find it. You're not going to find it because you won't go where you know it is. You'll go everywhere else, but you won't go where you know the presence of God still remains, where there are loyal priests and prophets speaking the word. You'll look everywhere, but I won't be anywhere. I will be silent. And you know what God's going to tell them to do? The last word he's going to tell them to do is, on that day, don't call me, call Baal. Don't call me. Call Baal. Call all those other gods you've been worshiping. 
Call all those other nations you went to before you considered me. You, you have faith in political process. You have faith in the power of your, of your armies. You have faith in your money. You have faith in all of that stuff. You go to all of that. Don't call me. And then the judgment will fall. And when that judgment falls, here's what the Lord says. In that day, the lovely virgins and young men will faint for thirst. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria will say, As your God lives, O Dan, as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. The end of the northern kingdom. They're going to swear by the guilt. What's the guilt of Samaria? The golden calves. Remember, they didn't, Jeroboam didn't want the people to worship at the temple where the presence of God was because he didn't want his people leaving the country all the time and going to the, the other half of Israel down south. And so he put a golden calf in Dan and he put a, a golden calf um, in uh, Beersheba and he put these things out so that they could worship. And so he says, you're going to swear by those golden calves, but you're going to fall. Because there's no power in those golden calves, right? There's no power in any of those things. So those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, as your God lives, O Dan, don't worry, your God, the golden calf, is going to save you. As the, way, as the way of Beersheba lives, don't worry, your God in Beersheba will save you. But what's the word God says? They will fall and they won't rise again. This judgment has come. The fruit <clears throat> has been gathered and it's ready to rot. And there won't be another harvest. This is vision number two from Amos. Now before we get too depressed, while the judgment is bad, Amos 9 is coming. And God never gives a word of judgment against anyone without also giving a word about the reconciliation with God. Judgment is a real thing, right? The Bible says this, is appointed unto man once to die and then what? The judgment. So the, the saying, the proverb would go like this, as sure as death is the judgment. How many people die? So far everybody, right? So everybody dies, everybody's going to die, and so as a result, will everyone be judged? Absolutely. Now, either our judgment is something we bear ourselves, which will be a bad day. That judgment is called the great, the great white throne, right? Or Jesus Christ bears our judgment, right? Right? And then he who knew no sin becomes my sin sacrifice that I might become what? The righteousness of God. So that's a gift that Jesus Christ gives me. Or I don't choose to live by faith. I don't put my trust in Christ. And I will bear the burden of my own judgment. So every time we see a, a small version of, <clears throat> excuse me, of the judgments of God like we're looking at here. Every time we see a, 
a time where God says, hey, here's a, here is a small day of the Lord. We, we know those small days of the Lord where a nation is judged for their crookedness before God, that all of those are types or pictures of the big day of the Lord, right? That day when Jesus returns. It's going to be a day of rejoicing for his own, and it will be a day of wrath for those who are not his, right? So every man, woman, child, person on the face of, of the earth has the opportunity to, <clears throat> to consider and be ready, be prepared for uh, that day. And everyone, from Genesis to Revelation, it gets prepared the same way. And Abraham believed God, and how'd it go? It was accounted unto him for righteousness. Or Jesus said, whosoever believes in me will not perish but have everlasting life. We, we enter by faith into that relationship, and God finishes the work, right? He brings it all home. Amen? Why don't you stand with me and let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the time we have. We can come before you and study the word, Lord, and I pray that we would learn. God, you lay out all these things, all this, all this kind of language is not... It, it, we are expected to be good students of the, of the Word of God and to take these, these stories, these words, these visions, these sermons, and to take them and kind of unpack them in our mind and then compare them with the, the whole story of God so that we can see how all the pieces fit together. And they do absolutely fit. You... Oh, God, are a redeeming God. The scripture declares that you are long-suffering, desiring that no one would perish, but that all would come to repentance. But as you send out your faithful men and women who bring forth the word of God, people will reject it. And when they do, they will face judgment of a holy, just, loving, uh, merciful God. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would help us to be faithful. Because even in our day, there needs to be faithful men and women who are calling this nation our neighbors and holding our government accountable for their disobedience and to say, no, you can't go this way. Now, they don't have to listen, but they do have to hear our voice. And if our voice is sounding, if we blow the trumpet, the Lord says, their blood's not on your hands. It's on their head. You told them the road you're on leads to destruction. But they get to choose the road they're on. So God, help us be faithful. And above all things, Lord, help us to examine ourselves 
to know that we are in the faith, that we are living our lives by faith and trust in Jesus Christ and nothing else. And as we abide in the vine, Lord, I pray that you would bring fruit through each of our lives individually and through the body corporately, that you be glorified and magnified in it all. That we give you all the praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen.